So 2 Peter 2, I'm going to start here at um, verse 17. Um, this is midway through the uh, exhortation to watch out for false prophets and false teachers. And um, so that's where we'll go. So starting at verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter is end, end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that is washed to her wallowing in the mire. So far, let us pray. Holy God, we come before you and we recognize these are weighty warnings. They are um, wide in their scope and they are um, words that um, we need to heed. And we pray that you would help us to hear this morning what you call us to. I pray, Father, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and I pray, Father, for wisdom to speak your word faithfully. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be discerning, discerning listeners, discerning in our life, and to uh, take stock this morning of who we are, of where this world is, and of who Christ is, who you are, O holy God. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to deal with verses 17 through 19. Um, I'd hoped to, uh, to get all the verses in this morning, but there was a lot there, so I thought, well, we'll just divide the last section into two. And so from verse 17 through 19. And I have three points I want to draw out. They are sober points. Uh, the first one would be um, hollow promises. The second point would be horrible plight. And the third one would be a horrid position. And it's all referring to these false teachers. So a hollow, hollow promises, horrible plight, and horrid position. So first of all, hollow promises. As Peter continues his evaluation of these false teachers, he shifts in these verses from um, what he had said before about their character to now talking about their effect on others. So no longer about their, them so much as what they're doing to others. And notice, first of all, he calls them wells without water. Now, water, as we know, is vital to survival. Without it, we won't live. And especially in the Middle Eastern culture, you can just imagine how they totally would understand the metaphor as you're traveling through desert country and you come upon a well and you run over there to both give water to yourself and to your camels and you look in and there's nothing there. It's dry. And that's what these false teachers are. They, they give you a lot of hope, a lot of expectation, but they're dry. There's nothing there. Lots of promise. But they can't nourish thirsty souls with truth 
and with God. And they leave their hearers parched, confused, and disappointed. Remember that. False teachers leave you parched, disappointed, and confused. The link here, undoubtedly, is to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2.13, where God says this of Israel and its false teachers. It says, Be astonished, O ye heavens. So God is calling the heavens as witness. And be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. And that's exactly what happens when man creates his own truth, when teachers take the Bible and twist it, give it a little bit of a better look to get something done for themselves. They're promising what God has not promised. And they're promoting what God has not promoted. And in such a way, these men and women are creating broken cisterns that aren't holding any truth. They give nothing of substance. Now, how do you suppose that we can be nourished by drinking from the dry taps of so much of what it calls and passes for Christian radio? I'm always shocked when so many Christians agree that, yes, we are getting influenced by what we listen to, and yes, we see even Christian radio is promoting some terrible teachers and yet the dial is tuned in and you're sitting in your car and this teacher pops up and you don't turn the dial. And you keep listening and you get influenced by it and sometimes it's hours of absorbing these broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is that you? What are you supposed to gain if you keep your radio dialed in to that or your podcast going on that player perhaps it's not there it's not in the radio but it's in the devotional you've brought into your home right you read it every morning faithfully you're pretty disciplined in that and it's actually not feeding your soul but it's slowly parching your soul of truth you might not even see it have you ever asked a mature christian brother or sister about the authors that you have in your home or or the ministries that are you, you are letting your children be influenced by. For many young, impressionable students in colleges, in seminaries, and in, uh, in even high school and, and lower grades, it can be very enticing to hear teachers in the classroom with confidence, opening a Bible, explaining something, but in the end they could be dry wells because often they will bring up novel things, new ideas. Have you ever heard this before? This is quite something. You can also understand the Bible this way, and they bring you clever concepts that create a vacuum in your life, and it's destructive. Another empty well would be moralism. You can be rigorous and disciplined in living and earning the favor with God. Um, This week I spoke with a young man who started attending church somewhere in our community. And I asked him, if you die today, do you know where you're going? And he said, well, it's a good question. And he said, well, I've, I've started going to church. I've cleaned up my life. I'm not sure. And he was measuring himself in the balances. And I told him, we'll never measure up. There's only one who measures up. But moralism is always crawling and creeping into the church, into our lives. 
Another one would be theological knowledge. And you'd say, well, theological knowledge, that's a great well to drink from. Well, it may be. But if you cram your head full of books and theology about Christ, that's not the same thing as embracing the Christ who you're learning about. And you might think, oh, I've got all these concepts. But you don't know him. And the false teachers just love feeding the information without drawing you to the person. The only teaching that we need and that we need in our lives is one that anchors us and morals and our theological knowledge to Jesus Christ, the person. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? That's the most important question you can ask yourself. Am I drinking of the wells of Jesus Christ? And let those of us who are ministers in the word, teachers, preachers, elders, um, fathers in homes, let us be wells where souls are blessed, not with us. We've got nothing in ourselves. We're just broken, miserable worms. But with Jesus, the great Savior, the living water, Jesus says, I am the water of life. Oh, drink of someone that, that you have tasted of and that you then can offer to another, right? Because when you go to a well and you drink and you're satisfied, what do you want to do? You want to encourage others, go, there's water here. That's what you want to do. And so drink of Christ's compassion. Drink of the tenderness of a Savior that stooped and ate with sinners and tax collectors. Drink of someone who was so holy and so pristine that he draws us to him. At the same time, we know that he's wholly other from us. Wholly other. You know, one of the practical things this means is purity of doctrine. Who would want to drink from a cup that has a little drop of arsenic in it, a little bit of toxin. Nobody wants to. In the same way, we must be meticulous in our theological truths to bring the whole Christ, the only Christ, the pure Christ, as he is presented in Scripture. But it also means this. It means ministers, elders, deacons, each one of us, we must not hide ourselves in our studies and invest solely in our nuclear family. This can be a real problem in churches because as churches grow, families grow, families intermarry. Intermarried families become their own little nucleus, and then they invite each other over, and slowly they become little cliques. And others are left on the fringes. And let's not kid ourselves, that can happen here. Let us make sure we are watching out for each other. Those we haven't spoken with for a while, let us seek them out. Let us be intentional not to create cliques so that we are not ministering to the whole body. Parents, this means that we are really watching that our children are soaking up the word of God. Some of the questions you can ask your children is if they're reading the Bible personally. I asked somebody that, that the other day. Do your children personally devotions. Ask them what they're doing for devotions. Take stock. As your children grow older, they, they will develop their own systems. You want to find out what's happening. Drink. Are they drinking from the right wells? 
From there, Peter moves to the other phrase, though. He says they're wells without water, but he also calls them clouds that are carried with a tempest. These are like fast-forming, quick-moving clouds. These teachers can come with a lot of passion, a lot of fury. The word here for speaking is a really unique one in the Greek. It's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It would be the same word that would be used, the scream of an eagle, the neighing of a horse, or the battle cry of a warrior. And with these three uses, strikingly, two of them are within three verses here. You know what the other one is? Balaam's donkey, who speaks. That's the other one in verse 16. The the dumbass speaking with a man's voice. That's the only other time. It's a loud word. It's grand and swelling words of promise. Which of us hasn't been taken in by preachers who, who speak well, who deliver with eloquence and with power and with passion and conviction? in there and you get drawn in right because that's who they are and then you're like wow that guy really is confident and surely if he's confident he must know what he's talking about who hasn't been uh, just sucked into that and so Peter warns us be careful the teachers can come with powerful oratory overwhelming confidence and often these are the kind of guys that end up having their own television shows and large crowds are gathered to them But Peter says this overwhelming confidence may betray an ignorance because he simply says, if you look in the text, when they speak great words in verse 18, swelling words, he calls them of vanity, vanity, swelling words, but they're empty. It's not true. Now, how opposite that is of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he spoke with authority and with truth. You remember what Peter says when Jesus made some statements about himself, and then everybody forsook him. And then he says, well, will you also leave me? And then Peter's answer, this is the same Peter that wrote this letter. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You see, swelling words really mean nothing if they aren't true words. So watch out for swelling, passionate words. Lots of promise, but no riches. Christ is all promise, all riches. There's no hypocrisy in him. Oh, how the splendor of Christ is not a showmanship, but it is an attractive and authentic Savior, one that we must be drawn to. Notice in verse 18, it says that they allure through the lusts of the flesh through much wantonness. The word there is a word of baiting. You know what it is to fish, right? You put a little piece of bait on your fish hook and you sink it into the water and you're baiting the fish to come. You're trying to lure them. You cast your line. You see, and where where do they cast their line? What's the pond they like to fish in? It tells us, doesn't it? The lusts of the flesh. That's a great fishing hole for these teachers. Because who isn't tempted to the cravings of the flesh? Who isn't drawn to our natural appetites to indulge in them? Whereas Christ calls the church to deny fleshly lusts, these false teachers, with confidence and arrogance, say, indulge, indulge. 
And therefore, Matthew Henry said this, and I'll paraphrase it. He says, we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that error spreads as readily as it does and that truth is hard won because these teachers are sucking you on something you want and something that draws us. And so it's no wonder that so many fish bite. So many of us are drawn in and it feeds on each one of us. What's the hook? What do they put on their hook? Wantonness, it says. That's lasciviousness. It's uh, unbridled, reckless sexual license. Love feasts in the early church were turned into orgies and revelry and lust. You see, in every age, there's Jezebels within the church that love to contaminate the purity of the body. And our Western church is succumbing to that. We see dating becoming a place of license to push the boundaries into what is reserved for marriage. Don't enter a relationship without first understanding the propriety of the things that ought to be in marriage. Fornication, they say, is tolerated so long as no one gets pregnant. That is creeping into the churches. I have seen wedding ceremonies where you dare not look around because suddenly when it's wedding day the Christians throw off all boundaries and the celebrations that are happening in the evening are not good at all wantonness the hook all you need is an opportunity an excuse and you're drawn in to be effective These teachers strip the doctrine of God from his majesty and his holiness. They have no room for that. And especially in Peter, what do they minimize? Future judgment. They don't like to talk about that. They think he's not coming back because if there's no judgment, you don't have accountability. If you don't have accountability, you might as well live it up. So who are they trying to lure in? It tells us. This gets a little bit complicated. It says at the end of verse 18, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Now, if you look at the marginal reading in your King James, if you're reading along in one, it says, or for a little while. That is because there was two words there in the Greek that the translators could choose between and was part of the textual body. And I looked into this a little bit, and I went into Theodor Beza's uh, Greek and Latin, and I transliterated the Latin, and he says this. Yes, it could be for a little while escaped, which would mean this. It would mean these teachers are particularly trying to bait in recent converts, those who were just escaped from the world. That could be. But Beza says this. He says it's really those who are clean escaped. because It's those who pretended to have professed, and, a pure, and now are escaped into a pure life. They left behind their idolatry. He says this may even, even hap- happen to some reprobates for a while. The point of clean escaped is that these were real, notice the word, converts. Because a convert is somebody that does a U-turn and turns the other way. I'm converted. I'm turning the other direction. They're not regenerate. They're converts. But those are the people the false teachers are trying to suck in because they've now joined the holy community. They have separated themselves from the world. And for a while, it looks like a clean break. And now they're being baited by these false teachers. Maybe you uh, 
Maybe you know people that have done this. They, uh, they left. They, they did a U-turn. They left the bad crowd. Used to, this, used to go to those parties. I used to hang around with these people. But now they're actually in the church, in the separated community, and they're actually being drawn to the same type of people, the same crowd. It's just now in the sanctified church community. Some left their atheist drinking buddies now to get drunk on Saturday night. As long as you show up on Sunday morning, you're okay. Others left the community of bad jokes and bad gossip only to be in the community of the church where they're still involving themselves in lewd jokes and juicy gossip. It's just a different community. So they had a clean break from that world only here to be sucked in. They could be in before they were boasting at their job site. Look at me, look at the business I've created. Now they're doing the same thing after church. Look at me, look at the business I have. And they're trying to create further business relationships at church. It's one thing to break from the friends of the world, but it's quite another thing to be broken from the lusts of the world, isn't it? It's so different. Now, why would we want these lusts? These are the very lusts that drove Jesus to the cross. These are the very lusts that he never gave into. He never entertained. He purely hated the lusts of the flesh because he desired holiness. He desired his father. He loved his fathers. And these teachers are making a mockery of Jesus Christ. They are, they are just scowling, condemning, sorry, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Why would we want to convert, turn from the world, take a clean break only to mock our Savior? Why would we want to bring such shame to him? Are our fleshly lusts worth more than Jesus Christ? We are called to a higher calling. We are saved to a greater life. Yes, we're not perfect. None of us here are perfect. Not at all. We sin in many ways. But failing isn't the same as failure. Failure would be to go back. Failure is to indulge 100%. We often feel, maybe you do, as I did this week, we feel like Luther, who says we sometimes feel more like a loser than we do a victor. But let us remember, we are in a community that exists not because of how well we've performed or how, how much we've measured up this week compared to last week. We are a community that has turned from the world, sought a Savior in Jesus Christ who continually sanctifies us, and therefore we don't quit. We must persevere and press on to holiness without which no man shall see God. Don't lower the bar in the church. Let us raise the bar into the word of God's standard. Jonathan Edwards, at age 19, 19 years old, he made 70 resolutions. One of them is this. Never to give over, not nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions. Jonathan Edwards. Are you carefully watching for the bait of compromise? Are you resolved to persevere in the faith? Are you committed to the cause and the name of Jesus Christ in everything? Are you fixing your eyes on him 
who laid down his life for you. That brings us to the second point. When it says in verse 17, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Peter is sober here. He says these pretended to give enlightening insights, but instead they're going to the place of no light. They spread darkness, so the mist of darkness awaits them. Well, you know what it is like to be in a thick mist. You can't see ahead. You don't know where you're going. But they're in their pomp. They said they had the way, but they had no way, right? And so this same darkness that holds the angels at the beginning of the chapter from the days of Noah, which is beyond salvation, beyond hope, to a place of frantic flailing, a place only full of misery, a place where one will spend so much time and time will go on. We'll keep going and keep going. Did you notice those words? It says it's such a place, it says, that is reserved forever. The darkness. Have you considered the weight of this? Young people, have you considered the weight of your souls? Have you considered that this whole thing, this Christianity, we're not talking about fiction here. As if church Christ wasn't serious about his holiness. Darkness proves his seriousness because he is willing to send rebels there. You think God was serious about sending his son as a savior? Do you think the Holy Scriptures are just being laughable? When they say that he gave himself to us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And then it says this, to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good words. Was the Bible just kind of making that up? Was that just a sidebar? Not at all. These words should make us tremble soberly, humbly. And to shudder at those words of forever. The holy angels will go on forever praising God. And those, the Bible says, who do not grow weary in well-doing will one day reap. But darkness is forever the lot of those who do not persevere in Jesus Christ. How has it been that the church has become so flippant about false teachers? Are we so busy with our homes, with our families, with our business, with our friendships, with our communities, with our politics, that we are not guarding the purity of the body of Christ? Brings me to the third point, horrid position. Verse 19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Do you have anyone in your family who's in a cult? Some of us may have that. They may have even have grown up in the church. But then they left because this cult leader was persuasive. Have you ever wondered why so many people fall victim to cults? It's because these teachers are good at their trade and they promote what people want, liberty from the law of God. They call for a different kind of freedom, a freedom to be your own law, to make your own religion or to follow the law that was created by the cult leader. 
But in reality, it's, as the Bible says, it's a culture of slavery, right? Cults are cultures of slavery. But everybody in ancient Rome understood what slavery was, didn't they? It was, a, it was an entire empire built on the backs of slaves. One third of Rome, they say, was slaves. And how did you become a slave? Most became a slave either by birth, but otherwise it was through war, through war. But these false teachers take these slaves and they put shackles of guilt on them. And they then say they draw them in through that with something that they've, a new law they've placed on them. And then they say, away, well, cast away the restrictions of God's law and I'll give you a new freedom. Because after all, there's no judgment from this God. You can do what you want. And so Peter tells us what they really are. They are servants of corruption. Because that word doulos is the same word. It's the word slaves. They, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And what can a slave really offer? Can you imagine that? Two slaves sitting together, and the one slave says to the other slave, I'll give you liberty, while he's got shackles around him. It makes no sense. And so he has nothing to offer. And so Peter actually says these teachers, these boisterous teachers, are actually enslaved to their own corruptions. Think about how many idols lord over them. Think about how many vices, how many tyrants of corruption control them. Would you call it freedom if man can choose nothing but sin? Would you call it liberty when one is in service to corruption? There's no freedom in that. Perhaps we don't realize the idols that are demanding our worship. The ones that are trying to tighten the shackles on our hands what holds our attention what competes for your time what are the things that you get upset about because an idol is often identified by the things we get upset about when someone touches them when they get too close to them is it perhaps your desire to control your spouse is it your passion to feed your ego when somebody is Making you look a little bit less than you really think you are. Are you irritable because your parents ask you to do something and they are cutting into your time, your idle time? Is it your space? I have this carved out for me. No one's allowed to touch that and I will get angry if someone does. And these shackles are closing in on us and these, these false teachers, they, just, they, they, they enable that. They say it's okay. You are entitled to that. You deserve better. And so they're feeding the lusts of the flesh. You see, idols, idols are takers. They're not given, givers. They're slave masters. They're like blood suckers. They suck the life out of us. And those that promote them, Peter says, are the most tightly bound slaves. They're slaves of corruption, destruction, ruin. How do we know how do you know somebody is completely bound, that he looks clean escaped, but he's really still in the world? Peter tells us, remember how I said that most slaves became slaves through military conquest? Because when a nation was captured, what happened to it? They were enslaved. And Peter uses that concept 
and links war and slavery together here to identify the answer to the question, how do we know somebody or me is a slave to corruption? And he says it, for of whom a man is overcome of the same is he brought into bondage. One version puts it this way many years ago, he says, for a man is the slave of anyone by whom he has been worsted in the fight. Overcome. The battle was lost. Just like Rome, the nations they fought against lost. And now Rome takes them and enslaves them and puts shackles on them and sends them to the salt mines. So how do you know? If you have wholesale surrendered to the lusts of the flesh, wholesale, you are enslaved to them. If you are not battling sin, there's no fight in you. But instead you willingly and unashamedly give in, they are your masters. You are not of the kingdom of light. If you have no hint of seeking the things that are above, but are only seeking the things that are below, then you are enslaved to that slave master. If you are only seeking to feed the bank account, only seeking to grow the ego, only demanding that everything revolve around the kingdom of self, and you have no aspiration for the kingdom of Christ then you are a slave to self. And it owns you. But perhaps you're here this morning, as I hope we are. I hope none of us here this morning is a slave wholesale given to self. But perhaps you are. Perhaps you're here, though, and you're dejected with failures. And you say to yourself, Lord, I am fighting I am seeking the Lord. And so there is a fight going on. There is a battle going on, but you're dejected. And you're saying, the sins I am battling seem stronger than me, and I keep losing. Perhaps that's you. And you ask yourself, with that continual failure, even though you're fighting, you ask yourself, am I kidding myself? Am I really a Christian? You ask yourself that. Don't be discouraged if you are battling, if you are fighting the fight of faith, if you long to obey God's law, if you are seeking to grow in holiness, then you are not overcome by the lusts. The only time the nation fell is when they surrendered, when they stopped fighting. But as long as there's a fight, there's an identification that you're not wholesale given now, we've got to be careful here, because this could be read wrongly. Christianity is not to be measured by how big of a fight we put up. Our fight is only an identifier that we're not wholesale in. We, but Christianity is not a measured by on how hard we try to improve our life, because that's what you could be hearing now. Well, I'm fighting. As long as I'm fighting, I'm in. Be careful. The fight identifies a reality. The war is raging. But we've got to ask yourself, what am I banking the fight on? Because if I bank the fight on my strength, and if that's my hope, then I'm actually enslaved to my own morality and not to Christ. 
We are not dependent on how many times we've struck out. The battle, here's, hear this, the battle is only a battle when we fight in the freedom of knowing Christ who won the battle. The battle is only a battle when we battle in the freedom of knowing Christ who won the battle. And I will add, decisively. Then it's a battle. There's only one who overcame, right? Because of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he enslaved. Well, Christ overcame at the cross. Christ defeated sin by living the perfect life, by flawlessly fulfilling the mission of holiness. He struck home 100% perfectly. He never sinned. He never entertained the lusts. Our Lord won the battle because he was single in his focus to his Father and his separation from the world and his separation to God. And so Christians, if you are battling, that is a good sign, but battle in the freedom of knowing Christ. That's Christian battle. We live as freed sons and daughters of God. We battle in the glory of him who already won for us. We plead the blood of him who died and looked like he was defeated. He looked like he lost. But we preach Christus victor. Christ the conqueror. Who triumphantly rose from the grave. And this means. That you and I. Are not. Going to beyond. Be beyond the struggles of trials and temptations. They will be there. Christ never promised this salvation means no fight. It means real fight. Because now the devil really wants you. He doesn't care about those who are enslaved. He'll just tighten the noose a little more. He hates Christians. Because they look to a savior. And so do not be surprised with the battles. Do not be surprised with the struggles. We're not beyond struggle. If you think you're here this morning and Christianity's promising you that life of no struggle, that's not Christianity. But Christians are beyond hell. The reach of hell can never get to them. The Christian life then will be marked by a battle with an increasing awareness of sin and when we have an increasing awareness of sin, we have a greater admiration of the Savior. When we have an increasing awareness of sin, we see more its strength because it gets us on the backside when we didn't see it coming. And we're like, wow, I never saw that before. You ever had that? You see new sins in your life you never knew were there before? It's often, often these root sins, right? Pride and selfishness, greed, lust, envy. You didn't realize how discontented you were. But that's sanctification, opening your eyes more for those backsided sins. The Christian life is marked by realizing how vulnerable we are when we are left to ourselves. If you had that, you realize I'm actually way more vulnerable than I ever thought I was. I thought I was going to have a great week. I was going to have it all solved. And something happened, and boy, the flesh was right there. The Christian life then will be marked by an ever-increasing dependence on Jesus Christ. And what a mercy that is, that God opens our eyes more for our wretchedness so we can behold our Savior even more and rest in Him even more. 
You know what a faithful soldier does in the battle? You know what who he needs to be the most connected to? The captain. Him who calls the shots. The field marshal. The one who's in control. The one who's navigating the troops. And so, dear church of God, regard as most precious your time with the captain of your salvation. That's where we need to hang out, with him. Daily equip your mind with sweet meditations of Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, his wisdom, right? Because the captain of our salvation gives us wisdom to navigate the battles of life. And the captain of our salvation is also the one who entered into the heavens to intercede for us before the Father. And he does so forever. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a complete stranger to what I am saying because all you've known is the tradition of Christianity. Now, you might say, oh, I've heard this before. I've heard him talking about the Christianity and Christian tradition. That's not me. That's not me. But maybe it was you who would have answered when I raised the question to that young man, how do you know you will be saved? And he was banking it on his church attendance and he was banking it on his performance. Maybe deep inside, you thought the same. You see, because you can be in the church for years and still be the one who one runs it on the scales, the balance of, his, of your own performance. Now, maybe you're not that person. Maybe you're the person, and which I also heard recently, I've committed too many sins. I don't think it's possible for me. The answer is the same for both of us, for both sides. The one who's the worksmonger, meriting it himself, the other one that's lost in despair. They're the same people, sinners, sinners on both sides, utterly bankrupt, both sides. And the gospel calls you to draw yourself, to look to Christ, not to draw yourself, to look to him. To, to trust in him. Because Christ doesn't bait sinners. No, Christ loves sinners and draws sinners to himself by his truth, by his gospel. I'm not here this morning to offer you a better life now at all. I don't offer freedom to this church. I don't offer my ideas or my solutions I'm here as one of your elders who is a broken man, who sins daily, who has nothing to offer in himself. I am a broken sinner this morning, telling you that there is one who brings the water of life. There is one who gives liberty. And there is one who said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Is Jesus Christ... He's not a cliche. He's a person. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Is He yours? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we thank you that you keep your church, Lord, for indeed there's Jezebels all around. And 
Lord, help us to be pure. Help us to, to watch out for wells without water and clouds carried with a tempest. But may we look to him who is the true water of life. And I pray for any soul this morning who, who recognize they're outside of him. Draw them to you, Father, we pray, with the words of love, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.